This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today from around the country and around the world. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jen Johnson. I am currently the chief of staff at Chicago Teachers Union. I'm also a high school history teacher, missing my classroom, but I'm grateful for the work that I'm doing today. And I'll be moderating our conversation. I think we're ready to get this conversation started. I'm so excited um, to be joined by Dr. Eve Ewing today to talk about what makes a school. Um, I personally first became aware of Eve through her creative projects and social media and then became really blessed to find that we move in somewhat operating circles. And, you know, she's been generous enough to even work with some of our CTU educators in a policy fellowship and help teachers do their research projects. She doesn't have to be that generous, but she really is. Um, Her timely contributions to social justice in both the academic and creative spaces is inspiring, and her commitment to racial justice is uh, unquestionable. So um, while most of you probably already know her, I'll do, I will do a quick read of her bio. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Dr. Eve L. Ewing is a sociologist of education and a writer from Chicago. She's the author most recently of the poetry collection 1919 and the nonfiction work Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. Her first book, The Poetry Collection Electric Arches, received awards from the American Library Association and the Poetry Society of America and was named one of the best books by NPR and the Chicago Tribune. She's great. (laughs) We're so excited. Um, So our plan today is to have, you know, a sober, but also um, hopefully engaging conversation about schools and what school means. And we're Chicagoans, right? And so Chicagoans know that school is a racialized experience. Um, If you're not in Chicago, you should know that 90% of Chicago public school students are students of color, Black, Latinx, Asian, or Native. Nearly half identify as Latinx. Um, And 50% of our educators are white. Um, So in a city that's this segregated and large, students could go through an entire uh, career teaching without having teachers of color or without being in a diverse school setting. I was often um, the only educator, black educator, that some of my students ever saw. So we're gonna be using race um, and also class as the lenses to have this conversation, because we think that's appropriate um, for this time and for this context. So, Eve. Jen, it's so good to see your face. It's great to see you too. It's um, a weird time, um, but we're glad to be with you. I hope you're doing well. How are you doing? I'm okay. I am, you know, every day I wake up and it's like, if you live in a place that has a volatile temperature, you wake up and you check the weather. And I feel like over the period of the pandemic, I've gotten really good at waking up and checking the weather on myself and just Mm. figuring out like, oh, what is, what is my level of, of capacity for the day? And just accepting it and moving forward accordingly. So today I'm I'm pretty decent. It doesn't hurt that the actual weather is also not so bad. Today. Although it rained all day, but it's warm, uh, so I'm good. And I'm happy to see you. That brings me joy to see you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. At some point, I'm going to hopefully get to go out on my back porch. I've been in meetings all day, but such is our new life. 
Yeah. Um, so, so let's kick it off. For those of um, the folks joining us who don't know your kind of school background, can you describe your relationship to Chicago schools? Sure. What schools have meant to you? Sure. Well, my my the first aspect of my relationship uh, to schools in Chicago is that I grew up in Chicago public schools. I attended um, CPS from kindergarten through twelfth grade, um, and had a pretty early understanding of the ways, uh, pretty early observations of the ways that schools are unequal and unfair. Um, as a student, noticing differences between. Uh, what kind of resources were available in my school and then playing basketball at other schools and seeing uh, differences there, um, noticing differences in the ways that I was treated at school versus how my brother was treated versus how other classmates who were specifically black and Mexican boys uh, were treated um, and starting to notice those things at a, at a very young age before I had language for them. And even before I would say maybe the field had as much language for them. Um, and then, you know, attending a high school, I attended Northside College Prep, which is a selective enrollment school. For those of you outside of Chicago, you know, in New York, these are called specialized schools. Um, in Boston, they're called exam schools, right? They're public schools in name, uh, but they are very restrictive and elite in terms of the kind of test scores and grades you need to attend them. And uh, the Little Village hunger strike happened, uh, which was a hunger strike for parents in the predominantly Mexican neighborhood of Little Village in Chicago who had been promised a school and hadn't gotten one and who went on hunger strike. That was happening at the same time as I was about to begin high school in a brand new building that cost $44 million yeah. to build. Um, where And at the same time, my brother attended a different high school in Chicago where um, he often felt very unsafe, where he felt very disengaged, where he was belittled by teachers, uh, where you know the environment wasn't uh, affirming or inclusive. And I went to a school where uh, we had seven different languages that we could take. We had an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So at a very early age, I was like, hmm. And I think I had a self-awareness of the fact that I had access to things that other people didn't have access to. And also that I was not a better person or a more worthy person. Right. Um, particularly when some of those inequalities were manifest within my own family. And uh, so I started to question very early on um, kind of meritocratic myths about school. Um, and then uh, I became a Chicago public, I worked in Chicago public schools throughout college. Um, and again, witnessed huge disparities with what was happening with different schools in our same district, in our same city, same taxpayer dollars. And then after college became a Chicago public school teacher. Um, and because I don't know, my therapist would have to explain like why I'm just <laughs> unable to leave schools. Uh, now I'm a professor at the University of Chicago and I study Chicago public schools and try as often as I can to um, also just be in classrooms and, and show up for young people in the city. Um, and I've also been really privileged um, with, especially since Ghost in the Schoolyard has come out and I've had a chance to travel around the country and around the world um, and talk to folks, really come to realize how um, similar our struggles are um, in communities across the country. So yeah, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with schools in a weird way. I can relate. Um, it was the only job <laughs> I ever wanted and it's like the family business in my family. So I, I totally get it. I mean, so what do you think made you attuned to the inequality that you saw even at an early age? Because I think some people can go through a whole ex schooling experience and not recognize it, right? 
as an educator, though, you know, you, you saw it up close as a student, though, you, you recognized it early on. What would you say caused you to be able to recognize the inequality early on? You know, I think a lot of young people have the experience. Uh, I used to teach middle school. And what I love about middle school is when you're that age, you're starting to reconcile um, the principles that perhaps you've been raised with, the ideas that you're getting from teachers, from parents, from adults, family members around you, and then your own kind of moral compass. And uh, that's why middle school students are so good and adolescents are so good at pointing out hypocrisy, which is why a, a lot of adults get really fed up with them because they're like, but you said this but you did this. And mm-hmm. you're like, ah, I don't like that. Um, and so I think that that's a really common experience. I think a lot of young people uh, start to ask those critical questions, but we don't necessarily provide platforms for them to dive more deeply into them. And um, I was really blessed to participate in programs as a young person. Um, young Chicago Authors, which a lot of people are familiar with, was a program that I was involved with as a, as a young person as well as um, Mikva Challenge, which is an organization that focuses on civic participation. And uh, so I had adults around me that when I was like, you know, this just doesn't sit right. They were like, yes, and here's more, you know, like you should read this, you should think about this. Um, but I had an undergraduate student come to me last week and ask me if I would be her advisor on her BA thesis. And she had also gone to Northside and she's from the Southwest side of Chicago. And she said, you know, I think a lot of us who go to schools like this uh, start to notice and ask critical questions. So I think that maybe there's an unwitting thing that's happening uh, where there's some um, intentional or unintentional critical consciousness raising when young people see just such a disparity. And I also think that the commuting, the, the mm-hmm. physical and spatial part of it is, is mm-hmm. also a big thing, because when you go to a school uh, that is very far from where you live. I, I commuted 60 to 90 minutes every day to get to my high school. So then you're like, but why, you know, this isn't mm-hmm. fun. Like, yeah, why isn't why? there anything like this around where I live? That's right. I had similar students who traveled two hours. Um, Malcolm London, who was a, a young man in the Young Chicago Authors Program, one of his initial kind of popular poems was about his train ride from the West Side to the school where I taught. So I think that's really important. When you get out of your community, you're able to make that contrast and see. And some some of our young people don't get to, to have that experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. while others do. Um, so I think that's a good segue. Um, I'm going to plug your other book, right? Oh, so. I thank you. And can I show, do I have the paperback candy? I, we, I'm, I'm sorry to do this. I got to go show everybody the paperback. Yes. That's exciting. This is new, right? This just came out. Okay. This just came out. Uh, this is the brand new paperback edition of Ghosts in the Schoolyard. I'm really geeked about this. So sorry for doing the whole thing of running tonight. That's all good. I got to get, gotta get uh, my paperback. Yes, I'm very <laughs> excited. And it's less expensive. It's 16, 16 bucks. So, uh-huh. but I'll let you say what you were going to say, but. No, no. I mean, I think if people haven't read this book, they really a need to. Um, you, it's it's kind of an. I agree. <laughs> it's in. I, I think of it as like an elegy to um, black schools. Um, you go through um, the history of struggle for um, schools like Diet High School, but you do do it through the voices of actual people who experienced um, the fights. Um, and for those of you outside of Chicago in 2013. Um, the CEO and then mayor um, closed basically 50 schools um, impacting, and of those schools and of the children who went to those schools, 80% of the students impacted by the closings were black. 
Um, and, and that was a hugely traumatic experience. You know, CTU led marches against it. Com individual school communities fought valiantly to try to keep their schools open. Um, and this mass school closing still feels reverberations today. So in the book, you talk really about that. And now we're in this strange school closing moment now. So how would you describe in this moment the impact of the, the 2013 closings, um, knowing that many children went through multiple schools being closed because there were smaller numbers of school closings leading up to 2013. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I really appreciate you making that connection. I think that there are a couple things. Um, number one is for some, so young people across the country are experiencing this unprecedented disruption. And I think it's really important that parents and teachers and young people themselves have been uplifting the narratives of exactly how traumatic this is, um, in particular, how traumatic it is to not be connected with friends and family, um, how traumatic it is with friends and with teachers and who feel like family, right? Yeah. And how traumatic it is to not have some of those key milestones, graduations, luncheon, ribbon pinning, end of the year, right? Um, and in such an abrupt way. But I think it's also important to remember that for many young people, this is not new. And as you're saying, what what the current school closures mean is that we are going to have a generation of young people that have experienced this kind of severe school disruption multiple times over the course of their their lives and over their short childhoods. And so what are we doing to recognize and acknowledge that kind of loss? Um, what are we doing to not just hold them accountable, but to hold ourselves and to hold policymakers accountable for the kind of education that we have denied them, for the right. kind of stability that we have denied them? And I think something else I've been pondering a lot is um, the, the last chapter in the book is about um, collective mourning and collective mm -hmm. grief. And I've been thinking about that concept quite a bit as I... Um, am speaking with students who are losing, I'm trying to not, in case some of those young people are watching, I don't want to just be um, really discouraging. So I'm think, trying to think about how to frame this, but they are, they are losing moments that they could never get back. Um, and that is just really sad. And not only that, but there's really, you know, if we're honest with them as adults, we have to face the fact that this is also not something we have ever experienced. And I, that just, that really breaks my heart. It breaks yeah. my heart that there is, if you are a young person right now, who's saying, you know, I'm not going to get this graduation the way I expected, or I'm not going to get X, Y, Z. There is not an adult anywhere who you love and who you trust, who can tell you what that was like for them. Or who can make, you know, we can make analogies, we can make comparisons, but it's not the same, particularly because it's not just about what's happening internally at the school, but it's also about the broader context of not being able to convene or gather. Right. And uh, that's just really sad. And I think that part of what I try to do in the book, uh, a lot of things I did in this book, I just did because I was like, this is the only way that this makes sense for me to do it. And people were very surprised by Um one of the things that I do that's really important to me is just try to make space for feelings and affect and emotion mm -hmm. and to say when we assess the impact of these policy decisions, we have to include an assessment of how these things make people feel and that that is a legitimate form of knowledge, that that is a legitimate piece of evidence that should be considered and weighed when we make policy decisions. And um, 
that's very different than the kinds of evidence that are usually used uh, right. exclusively to make these kinds of choices. So I think that similarly in this moment, it's really important that we make space for feeling and we make space for grief. We make space for affect, both for ourselves and also for our students, and that we acknowledge the ways in which that kind of grieving is going to have a profound impact on their ability to learn, but also that there's something to be said about honestly acknowledging collective grief. Right. And where is the lesson in that? Right. And then not pretending like, you know, everything and you have all the answers being reassuring, but also saying, yes, our, everybody we know is going through this right now, including me as, as an educator. And that's okay. And I think that there's some potential there to teach some really important lessons about um, acknowledging trauma, harm, sadness, loss, and contending with them in, a, in an honest way, uh, if we choose to, to take that on. I think that's brilliant. And I think, you know, it's a challenge to push um, policy, school policy in a direction of, I think, feelings because it's feels like it can't be quantified. Right. You're in a system where it makes people itchy. Yeah. If you can't quantify it, then we can't measure it. And then we can't value it. And it's like, well, our, our, our way of valuing things has to be outside of that um, set of parameters. Yeah. It's okay if we can't quantify. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a much broader thing. You know, like Audre Lorde uh, talks about this. And for, for me, I think that, you know, she talks about like, uh, I'm paraphrasing badly, but she says something like the white forefather tells me, I think therefore I am right. And the black mother, the black poet mother within me says, I feel therefore I can understand, right? Please go Google that. And it's in the book, sister outsider, go Google it before you just quote my bad paraphrasing of it. If you want to <laughs> learn more, but, um, and it's, it's in the, it's in the essay. Poetry is not a luxury, um, which is very important to me. And I, I think that I think it's actually part of what black feminism can teach us yeah. um, is this praxis of making space for, for feelings. Uh, or as my you know millennial self says, making space for feels, being in our feels, letting our feels be out here. And um, I think that the thing is, is that our students are having all these affective experiences, whether or not we choose to acknowledge them. That's right. So I believe that there's a lot to be gained uh, through, through candor in that, in that regard. That's right. I think that's, Totally spot on. Um, and and so in this moment, this COVID-19 closure, um, it's exposing the things that we value and the things that we don't with schools. So yeah. what would you say um, this closure is teaching you the role that schools serve and then what we value about schools? Yeah, I think that there are some things that I already knew that are being reinforced in right. ways that give me petty feelings. And then there are a couple things that are new for me. Um, so one thing that it, that I feel like I already knew, but that I feel like other people are learning is, um, okay, so the first thing that happened was that uh, we needed to figure out how kids were going to eat, right? That right. was the very first thing. It was like, if we're going to close schools, the very first question was, how are we going to feed children? That was yeah. the first question. And... <laughs> Because as it turns out, right, for many, many, many children in this country, school is the primary source of their nutrition That's and right. their food, literally the most elemental thing that they need to live, if maybe second to water, right? That's food, right. the most basic element of things that they need for their survival, 
through no choice or decision of their own because they are children, they are reliant upon schools for food. Okay, that's the first thing. We're in closed schools. How are we going to get kids food? The second question that then emerged once we squared away the food thing, and I want to give a lot of credit to mm-hmm. CPS, which mm-hmm. has given away, I think yesterday I heard the figure 12 million uh, meals, meals, uh, to, to Definitely up there, 10 or 12. Yeah. Millions literally given away millions of meals, um, not only to children, but to people in communities. So, right. okay. Bet. Amazing. Next question. We got to do remote learning. How are we going to get kids devices? Okay. Okay. Now we're going to get them devices. Well, they don't have internet. And that is an issue by the way, that is not only in K-12 schools where we have already known that there was this need and where we've been talking about it for years, it's also revealed a huge amount of inequality at the university level Mm. where, you know, uh, these elite universities like to obscure um, class differences and like to make low-income students, uh, often in unintentional and silent ways, feel very alienated and like they don't belong. But there's this way in which uh, these class differences kind of get obscured. Mm -hmm. Well, when you're at home, that can't happen, right? So you have people at Ivy League schools that are struggling in the same way with devices. They're in the, the, you know, McDonald's parking lot trying to get Wi-Fi. That's right. So let's jump back to K-12. So, okay, food, devices, internet. What this reveals for the first time is that, not for the first time, but for some people for the first time, that, you know, the title of our, of our talk today, what a school means, a school means so much more than the mm-hmm. place where we deliver instruction, mm-hmm. right? Where it's a place where we send the little widgets and they sit down in the little seats and, you know, uh, the teacher opens their brain and inserts the, the cartridge, the, the SNES cartridge of knowledge, right? And then they have received the knowledge and then they, they, they go home. Right. Then they leave. (laughs) And that's really like that is what a lot of people think a school is. And that basic presumption is revealed in so, so many bad ideas and so many misunderstandings of how schools function. Like one of my favorite examples of this is always um, if if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me we need to just give all kids iPads, then I would actually have enough money to give all kids iPads. Right. Um, Because people think that just the provision of technology is going to be enough because they think of knowledge as this thing that can kind of be downloaded. And wouldn't it just be better and more efficient if we got rid of the teachers altogether and just allowed more efficient downloading of knowledge? And this moment is for many people rather sickeningly, but for whatever reason, revealing for some people for the first time that schools are actually one of the last remaining front lines of any kind of social safety net, any kind of broad public engagement, any institution that tries to have near universal impact on our failing, broken society, where we have decided it is morally acceptable to be unspeakably affluent and to have people suffering, right, Mm -hmm. without the provision of even the most basic resources. And so what that means is that the labor that's happening in schools all the time is that when a kid comes to school and they are hungry, they are fed. When mm-hmm. a, kid's, a kid comes to school and their shoes are literally falling off their feet or they don't have shoes, it's a teacher who's providing for them, right? When a kid comes to school and they are not safe at home, it's the teacher who is making sure that they have a safe place to go that night. When a kid comes to school and they cannot see and they need eye care, right? And so on and so forth. Uh, when a parent calls and says, I'm depressed or I don't know how to parent my kid or I don't know what to do about this situation or I don't have a job, it is school that is the front line of handling all of these things. And yet 
so many people were somehow blissfully unaware of this fact that the pandemic is the first time that they have to face this reality that schools are doing basic resource provision in an affluent country that has abdicated its responsibility to do that. Okay. And then we have the nerve and, and, and then the, the, the plot twist, like the real, the real uh, kicker is that all of those things were already happening and That's all those problems were already in place. That's and right. we're still expecting kids to do X, Y, and Z, still evaluating teachers on this value added metric and that, right. And still shutting down schools when they fail to do perform it, in the way we want them to on these very narrow metrics without ever asking the question about, are you, were you hungry? Did you have shoes? Right. And so all of a sudden when there's a pandemic, all of that is stripped away and people, right. it makes national headlines that if we're going to close the schools, we literally have to figure out how to feed kids. And I hope that for some people that is an eye opener to really stop and think about all the things that schools have been doing all this time. And yet what's such a narrow idea of what it means to be accountable. And I just, I'm very proud of myself. I just finished a draft of a paper today where I'm, I'm trying to play with this idea of what I'm calling expanded accountability. Mm. So we refer to this period in, in schooling as the era of, the, of accountability, right? Basically, yeah. since just before No Child Left Behind into the right. present. Because teachers are being held accountable. Students are being held accountable. And if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you know, you're fired and whatever. Well, what does it look like for us to hold all those other people accountable that have made the decisions that result in that child not having school shoes right. to go to school, who've made the decisions to result in that child not having a safe place to sleep at night? That's not the teacher's. And it's not the parents and it's certainly not the children. So that's that's something that I feel other people are learning right now. And because I am a little bit of a petty person, I'm like, you know, like, come on, people get on board. That's fine. Better late than never. The <laughs> thing that I'm learning is just how much I'm, I'm learning in a new way uh, or having reinforced for me is just how much we ask of kids and how yeah. incredibly important and ridiculous it is. Yeah. Um, I had a conversation with my cousin last week. She's 10 years old. She's in fourth grade. She does not go to school in Chicago. She lives in Massachusetts and she attends a very nice private school and her parents are very educated and she has her father and her, her mother is a doctor uh, who is out doing the important doctor things mm -hmm. right now. She married into our family. She was a very key acquisition. We did not do Ewing's. <laughs> I'm not producing any real doctors, only fake doctor, like fake doctor Ewing, which is me. All right, all um, right. You know, I'm not that type of doctor. I can help you with your racism. I can't help that's, you with anything that's else. Important. <laughs> it is, it's important. If somebody's on the plane and they're like, I've been microaggressed, <laughs> so you can ring the bell and I will help you. Uh, but her mother is a doctor. Her father and her grandmother are at home with her all day. She has Wi-Fi. She has everything that you could ask for in terms of an ideal remote learning situation. Right. And she's really behind on her schoolwork. And I got on the phone with her and I said, well, what's, you know, what's, what's up? And she said, you know, normally when you go to school, you get there and then they tell you the schedule and then they give you work and then you do it. And then when you get home, if you didn't do any work at school, you finish it. But yeah. now I have, and then she, she logged into her Google classroom and she starts clicking around and she's like, this is my schedule and I have to do this. And my teacher's sending me this, this is virtual and this Aww. is going to come in the mail and I have this packet. And I was watching this child that I had held in my arms as an infant, uh, you know, whose diapers I had changed. And I was watching her be like a little office worker. Right. And 
it was um, so distressing and so developmentally inappropriate. Right. And that that's the thing that has just what we are asking kids to do right now, regardless of their circumstance outside of before we even get to the Internet stuff, before we even get to any of those things. All kids right now, what we're asking them to do is a level of um, executive function and time management that is um, horribly developmentally inappropriate that what we usually do is we really don't ask people to do it until they get to be like 18. That's right. And and even then, when we ask them to do it, we give them so many supports and we kind of know that they're going to fail. Right. Like we know that a lot of people go to college and in their first term, they are like, I have all this free time and they don't do their work and they mess up. And then we have lots of supports in place to catch them and to explicitly teach them the skill of time management. And we have all these people hovering and checking on them. And we're now asking little kids to do that. And that's bad. Yes, it's real bad. And that's before we get to whether we're providing the, you know, supports that our students with disabilities are supposed to be getting. That's before we get to if we're supporting our bilingual students. That's before we get to whether any of our kids have computers. That's before we get to if they have a quiet and safe place to learn. Just the the basic developmental task that we're asking is unreasonable and absurd. And yet not doing it is also really costly because I am very worried about, you know, what it means for my niece's reading and her math for her to not get instruction, like quality instruction right now. I am not, I'm not a person. I know a lot of, you know, parents and educators are kind of like, oh, it'll come out in the wash. There's a lot of class privilege in being able to say that. Right. And there are a lot of kids where it is, it is going to impact their life potentially to not get three, six, nine, 12 months of instruction that they should be getting at this kind of, at the developmental milestone where they're at. And so that's, those are like two terrible choices. Um, right. That is a real rock in a hard place. And some of it is unavoidable, but some of it would be a lot better if we had done our job on all the other stuff. Like if we were, if we had the social safety net in place to be paying all parents so that they could be at home with their child, um, helping them, even with knowing that it's all impossible to do the multiple things, there are things we could do better, right? So that it wasn't a choice of, am I going to earn income today or am I going to stay home and supervise remote learning? Um, if we were providing the basic infrastructure of internet before now, right, we wouldn't mm-hmm. be worrying about that. So there's this, if, and never mind the medical infrastructure of testing, like COVID testing and other, other basics. So it's really, um, it's another example of how our failures in all those other arenas come back to bite us when it comes to our kids. Um, and that is terrifying. And it just reminds me that I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not a policy person because I don't have the answer to this. I don't know, you know, I don't know the right thing to do. I think it's a lot of really bad choices. I hear you. And I think, you know, for that, I think, no, that was brilliant. That's (laughs) great. That's what we're here to do. Um, I mean, I think it hopefully is enlightening people that, those of us who have been fighting for Medicare for all, for student loan forgiveness, for um, universal pre-K, for things like sustainable community schools are not crazy. That had we won those things before, we'd be better off than we are now. It still would be imperfect. Um, but when we fought at CTU for sustainable community schools is because community told us, community members, organizations said, 
we need to be partners in education because we know what is lacking. We also right. know what communities have to offer. Um, and, and, you know, there's reticence to invest dollars in a sustainable community school model. But in this moment, it, you've got to, hopefully we get people to see, like, it doesn't make sense to hold back. That's actually where the dollars should be spent. Community and parents being involved every day in education, because that's what they're doing now from home. Right. Surprise. Without structure. That's right. So, you know, I'm hopeful that the groundwork that, uh, you know, community members and community partners and organizations have laid will pay off. But we, you know, we did just go on strike this year just to get a single nurse in every school. Right. In a five-year period, we're going to need more than a single nurse in every school in several months. Um, If we're going to- And social workers. I mean, yeah, it's, Yeah. When I was, when I was a CPS student, we used to joke, like only get sick on Tuesday because that was the one day that the nurse was, was in school. And that's an example, you know, when you asked earlier, like, how did you become aware of, uh, you know, and it's like, you, you're, you watch TV, you watch full house or whatever you read books and kids are talking about going to the school nurse. I'm like the school who, you know, know? like that's a joke. Uh, yeah. As a teacher, it always felt so irresponsible. And then you'd have to say, well, they're not here today. So (laughs) let me go get you that ice pack. It's comical. It's comical. It would be funny, if, but it's not funny. That's right. It's just absurd. That's right. Well, so I I do, I feel really obligated to ask about this. Um, It's the five-year anniversary of the passage of the reparations ordinance in the city of Chicago, this historic precedent setting first um, ever in America's history when um, survivors of police torture won monetary reparations. But in addition to that, a counseling center, which has now been open for three years, the promise of a public memorial to the torture they experienced under Commander John Burge and other police officers. But it also included this win around curriculum and I was lucky to be a tiny, little, tiny part of overseeing with the school district um, the rollout of the Reparations One curriculum in 2017 and 2018. And it just makes me think about, again, the public pressure that it took to get something yeah. that was needed. But yeah. now we're in this moment where we have black and brown young people at home trying to learn from a computer or they don't have a computer. And this curriculum is still technically required. How, what do you think teachers should think to themselves when grappling with whether they should continue to teach what is required, right? Police torture, race, racism um, in this moment, you know, is so prevalent. You know, we've seen Breonna Taylor be shot in her home, Ahmaud Arbery be shot in the street in Georgia, police, you know, going um, over-policing Black communities during social distancing. So it feels like you can't not teach something like this, but how, how are, how would you advise teachers think about, um, how to approach this moment in terms of what you said before, we've got to respect the socio-emotional needs and the feelings of our students, but we also have to acknowledge the reality of the racism of this moment. Right. What do you, what advice you got? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I said, I'll say that my disclaimer, which I said to you before, which is I'm not telling anybody what to do about anything right now. Cause I don't know. I like, I am not trying to be the jerk. Who's like, here's how you should do the thing that I have never done, which is teach eighth grade during a global pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. not. I have taught eighth grade, but I have not, you know, under these circumstances. So that's my, they think about it. Yeah. That is my big caveat. Um, but I, you know, I think that there are a couple of things. One is that um, what's really clear, what is always made clear every single day, but what 
continues to be honed into fierce, sharp relief is that if you are a white teacher and you are not comfortable talking about race and I'm looking right in the camera, you are a white teacher and you are not comfortable talking about race and racism, not just race, a thing that people have a general sociological category, which is ascribed arbitrarily to humans. that has no right. base in biological reality. That's not right. just that, but racism, you need to get your life together now, yesterday, asexually, because our students need you to be honest and informed and ready to have these conversations. That's right. The In Chicago, you said about 50% of Chicago public school teachers are white. Nationally, Correct. it's about over 80%, right? So if you're a teacher and you're watching this, I mean, there's a little bit of selection bias in this audience, but uh, odds are you are white. And so you need to get your act together like now. And so I would hope that for those teachers who feel equipped to do so and are not going to do more harm than good because they don't have their life together, um, that there are so many connections to be made yeah. between the legacy of what happened with John Burge and the, the regime of torture that was implemented and perpetrated by the Chicago under his watch at the Chicago Police Department and what we're seeing right now. Because one of the biggest lessons that is important for everybody to understand about racism is that despite our country's obsession with individualism, right. this is not about a few bad actors. And what's important to me, the important thing to learn about the legacy of John Burge is not just, hey, there was a bad guy and he did bad things, right? It's that the Department of Justice, the courts, our own examination of history tell us that the Chicago Police Department has a systemic, pervasive legacy and basic functioning that is grounded in racist violence, period. Yep. It's not about individuals. Mm -mm. It's about the regular functioning of the system. That is also the kind of thing we need to understand to see why COVID is killing people and hurting right. people the way it is right now. Because there's a way of saying something like a virus doesn't discriminate. Okay, sure. But when you place an equal opportunity harm on an unequal landscape, the ramifications are unequal, That's right? right? That's why hurricanes work the way they work in our world, right? That's why the 1995 Chicago heat wave worked the way it did. It is true that nature does not discriminate, but man does, right? Yes. God does not discriminate, but man does. Yes. And so I think that there are a lot of important connections to be made. Um, and I also think that, you know, I'm, I'm wonky. I like data. I like spreadsheets. And something I always advocate for is like all the analysis, all the math that I did for this mm -hmm. book is math that you learn when you're like 12 or 13. Like if you can, if you can divide, if you can add, if you can find an average, right. If you can make a line graph, you can do a lot of the kinds of analysis that I did in ghost in the schoolyard. And I would love to see, you know, this as an opportunity for folks, not just in the humanities and social sciences, but also in math and in STEM yeah. Think about how to integrate some of these key concepts, because every day we're getting data analyses from the New York Times, from the CDC that, you know, from Chicago, we have the zip code by zip code analyses yeah. of, of where deaths are, of where confirmed cases are. Give the data to the students. Right. Yeah. And use it. Put data. You can't do data gallery walks. Uh, you can't do gallery walks anymore. <laughs> 
This is why I said I'm you not in a place to get advice because my first idea was a thing that you can't do. But adapt, figure out a way to adapt the gallery, walk to a Zoom call, right? right? And think that or assign students to do a news review and that they have to bring a piece of data to class. It can be any statistic or any number, right? And help them make these critical connections and do this analysis because they they can do it and they can make these connections. The other thing I want to say about the the Burge curriculum is that I, you know, we've been talking a little bit about how parents and family members, guardians are now um, really stepping up in terms of being educators. We've yeah. always known that care is a child's first educator mm-hmm. um, and thinking extensively as a, as a, Deeply involved auntie, when I say parents, I also mean all the other mothers, right? I mean all the whole family, uh, the aunties, the uncles, the you know, dude on the block that just knows things. So all those folks are really stepping up as educators right now. And I think that that is actually really powerful in the context of Chicago and police torture, because guess what? In a lot of cases, the parent who doesn't have a social studies degree or whatever, or is not licensed to teach social studies in, in CPS, maybe knows more about the history and their own perspectives mm-hmm. on policing in Chicago than perhaps the teacher that doesn't know anything about it firsthand, right? Who's maybe got a great training on the curriculum, right. but maybe has been harassed by the police, who doesn't know somebody. If you are a black Chicagoan, right? If you are a Chicago, I can, I can certainly speak as a black Chicagoan and I would uh, surmise if you are a person of color in Chicago, every single one of us has a story about being harassed by the police, about somebody we know or ourselves being wrongfully arrested. Maybe this is an opportunity for students to be gathering some of those oral histories and telling those stories and doing those comparisons. And I think that there's a way in which we can be drawing on those community funds of knowledge right now. um, That is really an amazing opportunity. And, you know, going back to our point earlier about healing and grief, We don't want to do this in a way that is traumatizing to our students. We don't want to do it in a way where we are setting them up to experience things emotionally that we are not then there to catch them because this thing doesn't cut it, you know? Um, So I think we need to proceed with caution and like anything in the curriculum, you know, we just have to hope that what doesn't happen this year is just going to have to happen next year. But I think that there's a lot of creative ways of engaging around this conversation. Appreciate that. Yeah. I think, you know, we have to at least do our due diligence to honor the survivors and the community activists and their families who fought to get this in place and figure out what it needs to look like so this moment doesn't cause it to end, right? So Yeah, and those same people, many of those same folks who fought that fight are fighting the fight right now to get folks out of prison. And so, you know, what we understand, what we understand from the scholarship and the theory and the folks on the organizers in the front line is that this is a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. This is what we call a carceral continuum. It's, mm-hmm. it, and uh, many scholars, in, myself included, have moved away from talking about the school to prison pipeline. Right. We talk about the school to prison nexus, or we talk about the carceral state, because it's not about something that just takes place over here in policing, over here in prisons, over here in schools. It's about a logic of a policing and surveillance of punishment that is pervasive across these aspects of our society. And so I would love to see folks making that extension to say, okay, you know, are there folks who have been incarcerated Mm -hmm. under this regime who are now, you know, their lives are imperiled by the coronavirus? And the other thing is that, then I'll get off this topic, but um, I had a a student uh, write a really good paper last year. um, And she did an analysis of 
how parents in predominantly white schools in Chicago were objecting to the Burge torture curriculum. And one of the things that they kept saying was, well, these people were criminals. These meaning the, the torture victims, these people were criminals. And that's really fascinating. One of the methods that I use in my research is called mm. critical discourse analysis, okay. which we could just as well call people snitching on themselves. Right? <laughs> critical discourse analysis is what sure. people snitch on themselves. So when you say, well, these people were criminals, you're snitching on yourself because yeah. number one, in fact, by definition, they were not right. These are wrongfully convicted people. The only criminal in this story, the person who broke the law is John Burge, which is why he was convicted in a court and sentenced to incarceration. So he there is a he is the criminal in the story. So when you say these people were criminals, you are telling on yourself and your own proclivity to criminalize black people, specifically in this case, mostly black men by default, even when you are told these were wrongful convictions, right? Sure. Your association between these folks and criminality is so tight that it right. supersedes any logic. And so that logic, the, the hyper-criminalization of Black people, the default quick snap judgment is operating right now yeah. in so many different ways. You know, the same old, same old that we usually see and then operating in new ways in the COVID context that, you know, there is a lot to talk about there, uh, yeah. a lot to talk about. And if you're a teacher and you're ready to have, have that conversation, I think you should have it. If you're not, you should read another book. Get get ready for next time. Yes. Take some professional development first. Take some great <laughs> professional development from the Chicago Teachers Union. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I think that... Um, you're, you're raising for me, I'm thinking of young people who themselves are incarcerated in this moment and whose schooling experience was already secondary um, to their primary experience of being behind bars. Um, and then I'm thinking about how inadequate we served those young people previously. The first time, yeah. Yep. But so thinking of that and then thinking of the positives that you cited earlier, the black and brown women primarily who are making food in, in Chicago public schools every day and serving millions of meals, right? Um, they are putting their lives at risk by going yeah. out and back and forth every day. And I believe there's been cases among those school employees have been cooking the food. So I'm just thinking of these folks it, both the kind of um, the folks we've we've not done a service to, and then the folks who are doing a service to others and putting themselves in harm's way, and trying to connect. Like, how do we envision um, a new schooling world where we do justice to those young people, where innocence isn't a condition for treating someone with humanity and giving right. them the opportunity to grow, um, and where um, workers like that are not put in harm's way and their work is valued. So what would a just revolutionary liberatory school system actually look like if you could just dream one up? Not not the one we have, but the one we need. Wow. I mean, I think you just <laughs> said a lot of it. I think that um, I'm going to, you know, to paraphrase Baldwin, here's like a, a, what I consider perhaps a slightly bitter medicine. I think that... We know the answer to that question because we deliver. There are many children in this country who receive an excellent education in affluent schools and places of means. And I think fundamentally, many Americans accept in their hearts that children of color deserve what they get and that they 
do not have the basic belief that our children are children, that our children are humans, and that 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 informs why it's acceptable for folks to for our kids to get the kind of education that they get. But I also want to kind of call in um, organizers in who would not consider themselves education people. Sure. Because what you just said, Jen, that really was like very illuminating to me is that, um, and part of what I think has been so powerful about CTU's work in the last decade or so is bringing, and I'm saying this also, this is a Haymarket conversation that we're on right now, right? So bringing labor folks Mm -hmm. and a labor lens and a worker lens in conversation with the education and liberation frame yeah. is very important. Yeah. And I think that unfortunately, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I think no. that there, I think that there are many folks who are, oh, okay. That's <laughs> never stopped me before. I think that there are some folks on the left who unfortunately, who are very passionate about labor and yeah. freedom from the perspective of thinking about workers, yeah. right? Yeah. Unfortunately, have internalized some of the bad messages that we put out there about teachers and about schools, which is that this is an issue that's over here for these people. And I think that has to do also with the feminization of the teaching profession. Right. Right. And um, what you're saying, what you're bringing to the fore in that example of, you know, black women, Latina women cooking food putting their family, putting their lives and their families at risk, uh, underpaid to feed our kids, to provide the basic service that nobody else is providing and not getting the social supports that they deserve shows that this is um, such a complex interweaving of so many things that has to do with, again, that lack of a basic social safety net that has to do with intersectional feminism, right? And the specific experiences of women of color, the specific experiences of immigrant women, of undocumented women, um, and that all those things come to bear when it comes to the question of, has George W. Bush famously asked, is our children really learning, right? Right. (laughs) Um, That 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 question, or questions about learning and teaching and instruction can't be kind of siloed over here as this technocratic concern that is solely about graduation rates and test scores. And I think, unfortunately, really well-meaning folks um, on the left also buy into that, that siloization. And so that there are missed opportunities to really see the connectivity there and to really see that if a kid is not learning to read because they have not been fed, because their parent doesn't have work, right? If they did not have a safe way to get to school because we have disinvested in public transit and so on and so forth, uh, if they are not getting basic health care, right? All of those things are really interwoven. And I think sometimes we miss opportunities to have that conversation. And, you know, my big, I, I started a lab uh, at the University of Chicago. It's called the Beyond Schools Lab. Um, starting a lab means that I made a website and uh, that's what I did. And I am now the director of my lab. But the that's reason awesome. I call it that Beyond Schools is because I'm trying to 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 think about how we, interweave and synthesize these these issues that if we look at them from a topical perspective yeah seem discreet but if we look at them from a human perspective oh yeah all one battle and that's part of why you know we you and I both are obsessed with schools and part of it is that like I love kids Mm -hmm. I 
just love kids. Mm -hmm. I love children. And if you look at a child as, you know, what we call the whole child, this whole human, it's impossible not to see the way all of these other policy decisions are, are harming and trickling down to this child. So anyway, you framed the question in like a a positive imaginary way. And I made it like depressing and negative. So (laughs) My, my affirming answer to say, like, what do I dream of is I dream of a way in which we can keep that child, that learner at the center and use this magical, special being who is doing this incredible thing that we call learning. Right. This miraculous, incredible brain that does magic stuff every day, which is what kids do every day. A kid does a magical thing with their magical brain. If we put that magical human at the center and we say we are here for you. What are all the things that we need to do from a micro, meso, macro level to make sure that you are cared for? I actually think we can solve pretty much every problem that way, right? Because then we're like, oh, you need a safe place to live. And you need a parent who can be attentive to you, which means that that parent needs a job and they need mental health care and you need mental health care and you need dental care and you need medical care and you need glasses and you need green space to play outside and you need clean water, right? Like all of a sudden, all these other things become illuminated. If we just ask the basic question, how do I show the most love and nurturing tenderness to this magical human and to give them whatever they need for their brain to do the thing, right? where they come to you and they're like, look at this picture that I drew. And you're like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I just want to, if we try to create the conditions for that kid, then yep. everything else becomes gravy. It falls into place. That was beautiful. I mean, and it, it needs to be said. And, and, and a child is an intersectional being who has yes. all of these different identities and aspects of their life. And it's not crazy for labor, for teachers unions to, to see them as such and feel like, the fights that they have in all aspects of their life are fights that we need to be a part of. So thank you for saying that. That's really awesome. I'm going to try my best here to pick some questions um, from the, from the chat here that have been given to me. So, you know, apologies to those watching. Obviously, we can't get to all of your questions, um, but I do have some that have been shared with me. Um, so I'm going to ask you some. And so, thanks for watching. I forgot that every, I thought me and you were just talking. Yeah, we're just I talking. Everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everybody. <laughs> right? So Kay Graves asks, how do you encourage educators to build coalition with families to break down school inequities? Oh, that's such a good, I feel like, is it Kay or Kate? Kay? K-E-I is the first name. K-E-I. Okay, great. I think Kay just nailed it, right? I think that, um, you know, that there's school creates, school and society creates a lot of barriers and boundaries between parents, you know, community members and teachers. And some of those, like any classic divisive tactic, they're, they're like baked into the pie, right? And so, you know, how do you get low-income working-class white people to hate black people who are also low-income and working-class or to hate immigrants who are also, you tell them that they're stealing their jobs, right? And so similarly with teachers and parents, part of the high-stakes accountability era is that we make teachers pay, we punish teachers for, you know, grade outcomes and school and uh, graduation rates and test scores in ways that incentivize teachers to not look at parents as partners, because then they're like, I need to do whatever I need to do to, you know, to keep, to protect my job, to feed my family. And this parent who is asking me these questions or pushing back or criticizing me or complaining to the principal about me, they become an obstacle. And that's, and then meanwhile, parents often have their own trauma 
around yeah. school, right? School is not a safe place for many parents. Right. And, or, you know, as black people, we come in like, I, I already know from jump. I heard about what you said last year to that other kid or that other right. parent. Like, I don't trust you. I don't know you. Right. And so, um, I think that the place where uniting can happen is around specific issues, right. And kind of issue-based organizing and saying, where can we come together across, uh, perspectives? And I think also it needs to be said, cause you and I have brought this up already. That's also means often crossing a racial boundary and a cross right. boundary. Um, how can we come together to identify the things that we both really care about? And I think it's also important for teachers in that perspective to have some self-reflection and say, you are often in the position of authority, right? You have been endowed by the school space with this. You're told that your voice and your perspective is more important. If you are white, you now have to also contend with that. You are a white person interacting with people of color, parents of color. Uh, if you are middle class, mm -hmm. right? And you're working with or, or affluent, if you come from affluence, if you are somebody who is new to the community where you live, right? Thinking about geography, thinking about all these things, it's really important for teachers specifically in that perspective to do that reflective work and to understand that you may be entering from a space of equal care, but society is not treating you with equal regard. And so what that means is you have to be the, you know, the guide on the side, not the stage yeah. on the stage. And you have to be willing to step back and, and maybe do a lot of listening um, so that there's coalition building, but you, you know, I would say the instinct should be to begin from a place of listening and learning and saying, how can I step up and be an accomplice and support rather than, you know, why didn't these parents want to come to the meeting that we had at three o'clock at the place where I work? <laughs> that's know? right. Why do you have the meeting at the place where they work? That's right. How about that? that's, you had a five I mean, minute commute to get here. That's right. I mean, that's an actual interesting um, benefit um, of this crisis right now. You know, no one can travel and parents connection has to be done remotely. Obviously, that's not where we want to stay. We want to be back in our school buildings. But it is telling us that maybe we can do more connection with parents that doesn't require them to, to travel or that um, is is asynchronous or works with their work schedule, right? Right. right. Or maybe and and maybe we should more of us as educators learn Spanish. I will just point out that um, CTU's Quest Center has been teaching a Spanish course to educators so they can be become closer. You know, they're not going to get bilingual in ten weeks, but um, we we have a linguistic um, prejudice, right? With mm -hmm. um, with our non-native um, English speaking families. And so we've got this one of our popular courses, teachers learn in Spanish, they can communicate with um, families, which is powerful. Like let's actually acknowledge where the playing field is uneven and actually yes. deal with it. That is a great, very practical piece of advice. Totally. So Stephen Halpern asks, Today, cities and states are using the pandemic to make drastic cutbacks in education. No one knows when students will be returning to school. And then he says, do we need a new political economic system? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Yes, we do. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I think, um, you know, I think that people, I think that everybody should be really alert right now for you know, ironically, like to me, what the pandemic shows is how much more public investment we need. Mm -hmm. And I do think that in education and other places, there's a way of using this as an excuse to pull away public investment, which is sickening kind of irony. Um, and so I think that what's yes is the answer. Mm -hmm. But the 
I think that the yes and of that is that um, we all need to be really conscientious, which is hard because I am very exhausted right now. And I'm sure yeah. a lot of other people are really exhausted. So it's not a good time to be like a thoughtful media consumer. Um, most of us just want to like, you know, I just want to watch like, I don't know, Comedy Central yeah. and play yeah. intent, play Animal Crossing for hours a day. But I think that we do need to be conscientious and be educating each other about policies that we see coming to the fore that we know are going to have long term detrimental effects. And, you know, I one of the biggest pieces of rhetoric that I feel ambivalent about right now is, um, oh, look, we could have done all this stuff remotely all along anyway, yeah. which I think um on the one hand is really important for disabled people um, and for disability right. from a disability justice lens where people have really forced uh, in-person interactions where they weren't necessary in ways that really have limited access and engagement for disabled people, for people in rural communities, like for people across all these different spectrums of, of difference. Um, and also I am really wary about the end game of, oh, this can all be Zoom. Right. right. Which is just not true when it comes to socializing and development, especially of young children uh, and of all children. And all of us are feeling that right now. Right. Because it, we feel that it doesn't feel good to not see people you love and interact with them and touch them for long periods of time. So we need to think about like the developmental consequences of that. Um, anyway, my answer to Susan's yeah. question is yes, but we, I think that the, we need to just be really, uh, judicious and pay attention, pay a lot of attention right now. That's right. I mean, we're, we're in a, in Chicago, you know, our school district has mandated that special educators do literally 50,000 remote learning meetings in the next five weeks because they are more worried about compliance with what they perceive to be their interpretation of law than actually getting students with disabilities and challenges access to learning. Right. And so that's the kind of thing that, you know, we, we absolutely need the investment so that we can reimagine what does it look like to connect with a child with physical or cognitive disabilities in this moment? It's not necessarily about scheduling a perfunctory meeting, however, right. Right. Um, which is what they are capable of doing. Let's roll out a policy, make some compliance ask rather than getting the investment that reaches the child or, or reaches the parent really in this mm -hmm, instance mm -hmm. too. Great. Um, so I'm going to go to another question. Okay. Um, this is from Aisha Ram Ramanujan. Um, she says, I think, uh, are there measures educators, and, and again, I know you're not trying to speak for all educators, but are there measures educators have taken in this time to maintain equitable experiences that you found particularly good or not? Have you heard of things that you think are exciting and positive, like virtual lessons live or not? You or know, Jen, I'm actually yeah. going to cheat and turn that question over <laughs> to you because I think that you're the best person to, to answer it. I should have seen that coming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because you, I mean, I can say anecdotal things, but it's like your job to answer that question. Like that's, you know, I think, I think it's, it was a gargantuan task to ask educators to um, do this proficiently immediately, which is what they've been tasked with doing. And, and so there are folks who are, are learning from each other, which I think is actually one of the most powerful things coming out of this, that people are sharing um, creative lessons. And I think what I've heard that's really positive is, especially for small children, um, not being so stuck on um, a, a large amount of screen time, but creating kind of a, a manageable 
chunk of time when a parent is available to give them tips and tricks and tools um, for how they can creatively engage their young people in everyday lessons. You know, not necessarily the kinds of lessons that you would do in school, but what can you do around your home? What can you do in your backyard? Um, and then honestly, the, the TV show that we've been running feels to me like I'm getting a window into the creative juices that educators are able to flex through the computer. Um, they are doing videos that their students can watch whenever they need to, um, when a parent is able to help them. Um, they are, um, doing things that are more socio-emotional, like making puppets, um, like singing songs, like that will uplift children. And then they're asking kids to think about and reflect on what their current experiences during this moment are. And so some of the most powerful lessons I've heard about are um, really um, like journaling. um, And then to your point earlier, you know, exploring what this moment means through the news and through what they are being faced with and and helping students grapple with um, this this moment. Um, Because we are, you know, we're obviously very concerned about this idea of children being behind. Also, I have to try to reimagine what that means, because it shouldn't mean that we need to catch up on the rote skills that get a child ready for a standardized test because the standardized test doesn't exist right now. So what is it that we need children to be able to process while this pandemic is happening so that when we do eventually get back to school, they they have a critical lens to, to process their experience, that they are still able to read and learn. Um, but it's not to me necessarily the same as like the content that we typically would have um, been focused on. I hope standardized tests, you know, we re- realized from this moment that standardized tests are, they're, they're, we don't need them. The world didn't <laughs> melt down when we decided that we weren't going to. Yeah, I think that's so right, because I think that um, one thing that we do know from research is that helping children make meaning of situations is really vital. And and that, you know, how traumatic, and many of us know this yeah. from our own lives, how traumatic something is in your life yeah, is not always tied in direct relation to the actual nature of the event itself, but is actually about how you're able to process and make meaning of it right. and how the adults in your life uh, assist you with that. Right. So something like, we know this again, anecdotally, like something like a divorce may be cataclysmic for some That's children right. and not so much for other children uh, or the loss of a pet, so on and so forth. And so I think that that skill of Meaning making, yeah. reflection, self awareness, self analysis yeah. um, is that that's really really helpful. Yeah, so I'm gonna try to translate helpful to us as adults. Too, oh my god, no joke. Uh, I'm gonna try to ask this question from a, a really a smart human called VJ. Um, it says like. Wow, I'm already intimidated, but it says for aspiring scholar educators, I'm like, okay, I'm not a scholar. Yeah, you are, but okay, okay all right. For aspiring scholar educators, how do you negotiate between academic discourses that seek to remain dispassionate with your critical discourses where feelings have epistemic value? I learned ah, yes. the word epistemology in grad school a couple of years ago, so I don't I don't feel completely. I get, I get what VJ is asking, which yeah. is in academia, people want you to pretend like you're objective and objectivity is sort of fetishized. Uh, and then as a human in the world, I have critical perspectives, right? And I think that I, um, I don't think I try very hard to balance them per se. I, I think that uh, I, I am very straightforward about the fact that I am a human 
with uh, feelings and I have a stake in the game, right? I don't research the things that I research because they're interesting, although they are, or because, you know, I get rewarded for them at work or anything like that. But because um, I think that these things are a matter of life and death. And I try to choose, you know, ways of spending my time in areas of research that I really think are critical uh, for the kind of world that I want to live in. And I do so with the understanding that, um, the world is very bad and it took a lot of time and many people to get it there. And it's going to take a lot of time and many people to undo it. And so my job is to like show up and just be the person with the chisel to just sit there and poke, 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 poke for however long I can until I keel over and die. And then the next person is going to come up behind me and pick up the chisel and poke, poke, poke. Right. And maybe if I'm lucky, there'll be a few of us at the same time. That's right. Like working, chipping away at the thing. And so, um, you know, I, I also draw heavily from traditions like critical race theory, like black feminism, uh, like phenomenological research, where uh, I, I am not the first scholar to say I do not have an objective perspective on this. Um, and here are the ways in which my own humanity have influenced the, the point of view that I bring here. Yeah. And so that's very encouraging. It's not a thing that I have to invent. Um, so yeah, I don't really, I don't really try the veneer of objectivity is not my thing. Um, I think it's fake and I'm not the first person to think that. So I just cite, I heavily cite all the other people that already said it in a smarter way. The other thing I do is, um, I am a stickler for evidence. So, uh, I don't feel that I need to evidence. I don't try to evidence my feelings, right? Like my feelings are my feelings. If I say my school was slated for closure and that made me sad, that is sufficient. And I think it's important to just write that and say it. When I say uh, the decision to close Chicago public schools was racist, I have a lot of evidence. Yes. I have a lot of evidence. And I I really believe, I think think if you want to be a, I'm trying to remember what the way VJ framed it, an educator scholar. Yeah. And also if you think of yourself as an activist or an organizer or a radical or whatever, um, learning to synthesize a critical understanding of injustice with the careful marshalling of evidence is a really good skill. It's really helpful. And there's a shortage of it in the world. And so if you can become a person who's good at that, it's really helpful to a lot of people. And I think we all have different lanes. There are people who see injustice and they're able to make incredible art about it. There are people who see injustice and they're able to make incredible spreadsheets about it. There are people who see injustice and they're able to really inspire everybody else to see it and show up at the meeting, right? There are people who are really good planners. Um, and I think that it takes all of us to, to do this work. But um, yeah, the, the objective thing is not my thing. Not interesting. Yeah. No, I think that was brilliant. As black women, this is yeah, a I was about to say, I'm too black. Yeah. I don't know. Just, yeah. <laughs> no, it was great. I'm too black to pretend like what happens to black people is uh, not of material consequence. It is urgent. And this moment shows us just how urgent it is. And if, if you're not on the, on the right side right now, then <laughs> you better get on it. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite quotations um, that I got from one of my best friends and is my email signature and all kinds of other stuff is from Sandra, Sandra Cisneros, who's a fellow Chicagoan. And she said, uh, we do this because the world we live in is a house on fire and the people we love are burning in it. Mm. So that's, that's right. I'm like, 
I literally, you know, and especially with young, young people in my uh, life who I've been a teacher to, or who are akin to me or who are the children of my friends or or my community members. I'm like, I'm trying to make sure that that kid is as okay as they can be. That's right. So we're coming to the close. I'm going to ask you one more school question and then I'm going to close with something that I think you're going to enjoy. So the last kind of school question is from Natalia Braginsky, who says, how do we, right? um, How do we resist the reimagining that Bill Gates and other reformers are up to and further privatization of our public schools, which will surely speed up in response to this crisis? And I think he's already said he's working with um, Cuomo, I think, in New York to reimagine. And New York's already announced budget cuts to their school, I think, on the order of 25%. So this is How much more reimagining can we really stand? Um, No, this is a a really good question. I think that... um, Philanthropic money uh, comes with a lot of promises and oftentimes not a lot of evidence or unfortunately insight from people who are most impacted by the policies that stand to be shaped. And that goes back to themes that we've been talking about, which is the humans who are doing the work are often women. Yeah. are often, and the humans who are most impacted by the work are Black and Latine and Asian and Native, right? And so because of that, it's it's bananas to me how many of these folks will develop these kinds of policies. And it would just never occur to them to ask teachers if they think these things will work. And some of that is that they see teachers themselves as being like at the root of the problem. Right. But it also, it has to do with, you know, racism and misogyny as well. And something I always say is like when I was uh, e-viewing sixth grade teacher, I was pretty much the same person as I am now. Right. I've learned some things in grad school, but like fundamentally, I was kind of the same. If you asked me uh, what I thought about schools and what works and what doesn't, I would have given you a variation on the same things I'm saying today. But nobody wanted to hear that. And I was e-viewing sixth grade teacher. I was not invited to do a lot of things, right? Like I was not asked to to uh, to opine very often. That's right. Um, and so I think that phil- philanthropy is very tempting because money comes with it and also because um, these folks are talking a good game. But I think that as much as possible, we really need to apply public pressure to ask critical questions and to say, in what ways is this responsive to the demonstrated and stated needs, stated needs of the people who are most vulnerable right now? And those people are children, teachers, community members, family members. And the thing about like the Gates Foundation and is that like they have their shot, you know, yeah. like oh, I think yeah. that throughout the 90s and the 2000s, we really saw uh, lots and lots of private money from, uh, you know, philanthropic folks going Mm -hmm. on Oprah, going, you know, like making big moves, making big headlines. And um, it's 2020 and the schools are pretty much the same as they were. And so I would like to know what happened to all those billion, you know, 11, 50, 11, $4 billion dollars if if schools are still mostly how they are. And I think part of the issue is that a lot of these folks, their analysis of the problem does not include a basic understanding of racism, white supremacy, and that kind of fundamental dehumanization of children that we've talked about. So 
Um, you know, like maybe I don't know what it's like to have a billion dollars. So mm-hmm. far be it for me to tell these people what to do with their money. But I think that all of us have to just, especially when it comes to public, uh, our public officials who are accountable to us, mm-hmm. we need to really ask critical questions. Um, and I'm trying to remember what the person actually asked and make sure that I'm no, actually answering it. You yeah. hit it. How do we okay. stop that privatization? I mean, I think yeah. you're saying, you're saying on the one hand, nothing about us without us. Yes. But also, you know, my my vice president at CTU, Stacey Davis Gates, is always good about saying we don't need the rich people involved. We need the rich people's money. You know, yes. this is your time to contribute to this collective society that we have. We need your tax dollars. We need to pass a fair tax in Illinois and then yeah. let the community do what we need to do. I think that's, you know, that's a really important piece that bears mentioning, which is that, and I think a lot of folks, like if you've never been involved with a nonprofit, it's not something a lot of people think about, but you know, my husband is a, is a tax economist. So this is something we talk about a lot is that when folks like Bill Gates make those big, tremendous gifts, they get to benefit financially from doing so. Right in terms of their taxes. And they also get to control the narrative. So they get to tell us, like they get to control the narrative and frame a story in which they are the hero and they are solving a problem that they get to frame. Whereas when we seize the, the assets that are owed to the rest of us as a country, you know, from the accumulation of massive wealth that these folks have have pulled off on the backs of their workers, on the backs of our education system, on the backs of our public infrastructure and our public resources, then we as taxpayers, we get to set the terms, we get to set the agenda. And so, um, and and it's not ultimately beneficial to them. I think that, you know, the only good thing that came out of the uh, comical Bloomberg uh, candidacy for president was to get a lot of people to really stop and think like how much a billion dollars really is. Yeah. So much money. Yeah. It's it's unfathomable. It's, it's it's literally, it's unfathomable. It's beyond the scope of what you can possibly even wrap the, it's beyond the limits of human cognition, quite frankly. And people, you know, were celebrating when Ken Griffin made that donation recently for the food assistance in Chicago public schools. That is, It was a drop in the bucket, right? It was like pocket change. Like the schools are going to provide the food anyway. We need to make sure the schools have enough resources to do that. We don't need your chump change. We need your tax dollars. (laughs) Right. So I think that that, you know, I think that what one thing we can really be all doing right now is fighting for a broader imagining of what it looks like to serve our public, right? From through, through public efforts and not kind of celebrate and pat on the back philanthropists. And that's real deep because a lot of us, you know, America fetishizes and is in love with money and is in love with these folks. And that's true in communities of color as well. You know, people love the image of like black billionaires and, uh, you know, that we're going to solve our problems through black capitalism and, and black banking and things like that. And, I, you know, that is something that's really easy for a lot of folks to succumb to. And I understand that, especially if you have not had anything. It's It's rational. It's rational. It makes Mm -hmm. sense. But um, yeah. Yeah. I hear you. All right. So I'm going to try to do a a, a little closing here. So we know you're you're a poet. I'm plugging the books again. 50% off haymarketbooks.org. Oh, can I make another plug related to that? If you go to haymarketbooks.org, 
the 1919 has a free teacher's guide that you can download. It's a PDF um, oh that I created in collaboration with a, with a teacher. Um, and well, I should say she created in collaboration with me. She did the heavy lifting. I was just like, talk about this, 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 and this. Um, but it's free. You can download it. It's a PDF. It has all oh, your common great. core standards, has all that noise in there. Um, and folks can get that at haymarketbooks.org. Um, and there's also an audio book for, uh, both books. Ooh. I feel like, uh, and I read, I read them. I read both of the audio books. That is brilliant. So what do you think is the role of poetry, um, right now and kind of the creative works? How, how do we help? Um, how does poetry and how does creativity help us think about this time and get through this time? Poetry is the free way to get to a world that you're not in. You know, it's a it's a free way of imagining the the world that you wish you could inhabit and creating it. Um, and I think that you know that's just really really essential. And I've been uh, I've been reading a lot. I've been reading across genre, um, and so some poems and some other things. But, you know, and I also really encourage people, if you've never written a poem before, this is your time. There are lots of free prompts and things like that you can find online. Check out the Poetry Foundation website. Check out poets.org. Check out the Poetry Society of America. Free, free, free. They all have all kinds of great resources. And, you know, like if you feel a way today, write a poem about it. Nobody has to see it. Nobody has to know. But uh, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. Brilliant. So. The, the close close is a last question. Okay. And it's says it's from, ah. right. We got to bring in the comic book. And I didn't, I didn't plan this. This happened naturally, but I did have my comic book ready. Cool. So, um, you know, many of you guys know, um, Eve as a poet, in addition to being a scholar, but she's also a comic book author. It's phenomenal. Um, so the question, the last question for today comes from triple S and it says, I'm an 11 year old boy. I've learned a lot from Riri Ironheart. Thank you so much for writing a comic book about a black girl. What made you write a comic book and how comic, how can comics be a part of learning? Wow. This was a setup for me to cry on the screen. I know. I'm sorry. It was just so was very deeply unfair. I'm going to hydrate before I answer the question. <laughs> I mean, it's perfect. It ties learning and school to the comic book. It's brilliant. Yes. Thank you so much for that question. Uh, triple S that's such a cool name. I'm double E. So shout out to triple S. I hope you're watching. And that's why I don't use any curse words when I do videos. Um, so the first question was, why did I want to write a comic? Yep. Um, I wanted to write comic books because when I was growing up, I like to read a lot of comic books and it seemed like an incredible opportunity to tell stories uh, to young people like you who would read them all across the world. There are kids who read Ironheart in all different countries and it's translated into multiple languages. And I love superheroes. I really believe in superheroes. So um, it's really fun to be able to tell those stories. And I also think that when I write comic books, I can trick people into thinking about things mm. that are maybe difficult to think about and they haven't thought about them before. Um, but if you slide them into a comic book, then they're more open mm. to hearing them. It's kind of like putting kale in your smoothie, you know, and like <laughs> make it up with a banana and a bunch of fruit. Um, and so in Ironheart, you know, it's a story about a, a girl who fights crime and is a superhero and can fly and can do all these great things. 
but it's also a story about a girl who's had a really hard life um, and who hasn't taken the time that she needs to heal, who hasn't opened herself up to friendship and doesn't really have friends. And it's about her learning that she's not perfect, that it's okay to make mistakes, that um, it's important to take some time to heal from the things that have hurt you and that we all need friends. And so uh, I like that I get to sneak that message in there. And the second question was, how can comics be used for learning? Is that right? Yep. So one of my first things that ever got published was when I was nine years old, the Chicago Tribune published an article about how comic books are bad and violent and that they're not good for kids. And I Mm. wrote a letter that said comic books can be good. And um, so I believe I agree with Triple S. And I think that a lot of teachers are starting to use comics more Mm -hmm. for learning, which I really appreciate. I think that some kids can learn to read really well through comics because there are pictures that go along with the words. And I think that uh, comics can help you learn to be a better writer as well, because writing a comic book is really um, teaches you how to structure a story and teaches you how to build the different story elements like of a, of a plot. Um And I also, some teachers are using comics to teach history. Uh, Like John Lewis wrote an amazing graphic novel called March. That's about his life. Um, There's an amazing graphic novel about Frederick Douglass. And so I think that comics can, you know, there are comics about everything. Um, And, you know, but I think that there's the learning you do in school, but the best learning that you really can ever do is just on your own. And if you read something and you love it, and you read it with care, you're going to learn something from it. And it might not be something that you're ever texted on, but it's something that's going to help you grow as a person. And that's the most important kind of learning that any of us can do. So I really appreciate you reading. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. My dad is an avid avid comic book reader and has been reading comics for like 60 years. I think my inheritance will be just thousands of comic books. That's Um, great. (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah. Um, I'll shout out too. There's a really great graphic um, novel called Incognigro about the history of race and lynching that I used to use in my classroom. So thank you, Triple S for having us. The Matthew Johnson one? Yes. The Matthew Johnson one. Fabulous. So thanks, Triple S, for having us close with comics and the connection to learning in this moment. Um, we've really enjoyed this time. I know I've really enjoyed this time. Um, grateful to spend the afternoon with you and we hope that our audience has taken something away that gives them hope, but also grounds them in the challenges of our reality. Um, we hope to be back in our physical schools when the time is right. Um, but we've got to keep making sure that in this moment we are doing what we can, but we're, we're looking at people's humanities and safety first um, so that we can recover strong and, that, and, and, and less inequitable. We want more equity, not less when we come out of this thing. So thanks everyone for joining us. Any thanks closing everybody. remarks? You? No, I just want to say thank you so much to you, Jen, for taking the time and care to lead this conversation. And thanks everybody at Haymarket Books uh, for always supporting me. And thanks to the many of you who've been really engaged and trying to use this time as an opportunity to learn and to get into some deep conversations. Really appreciate you. So thank you so much. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.